Welcome back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 9, Malleus Maleficarum. Let's get this show on the road. Is this our first witches episode? Yeah, I was going to say we've had like spell casting before, but it's always been. I mean, the one time Sam kind of did a seance ish, but otherwise it's been demons doing magic. Like I'm thinking of uh, season one. But no, yeah, this is our first witches. It's definitely our first coven. That's for sure. I enjoyed this episode. I'm just going to say it now. I will also admit that for the first time almost ever, I like somehow my brain forced me to read the like credits at the beginning. So I saw our writer and director combo and was like, oh, yay. (laughs) Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) Are you ready for the recap? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. We have a really terrible witchy murder with the whole teeth falling out thing that's super creepy and scary and will give me nightmares, which it did. We then have the brothers depending, pretending to be the CDC to investigate this. And they show they then realize that there's clearly the hex bag things. So it was clearly a witch's things. So they've kind of already solved this pretty quickly. But then there's the whole, well, what do we do next? So they start stalking the husband, realize that he's a target as well. They save him, even though the witch not only tries to kill him, but uses like some fun irony with the music choices. So good for her, I guess. And then they finally figure out who it is. They go to find her, but it looks like she was killed, too. And also by witches. Problem solved itself, but other problems arise instead. I don't know. I thought it was kind of fun. We then get a little surprise from Ruby, who tells them that this isn't just witches. This is some big, scary demon stuff. So get out of town. Dean and Ruby have an altercation. Sam saves Ruby. And then Ruby will later save Dean. So everyone's being saved by someone. We confront the witches. Turns out one of the witches is actually a demon the whole time. And Ruby used to work for this demon. And then Ruby reveals a ton of cool shit we'll talk about later about her humanity. And her and Dean kind of have a cute moment at the end. And the witches, unfortunately, don't make it. The demon kind of makes sure of that time wow yeah again like a lot happened this episode but it felt like so much of it was set dressing to get to the core of it but that set dressing was so good i really really enjoyed that we are well like i said that we are finally getting to witches i feel like this is overdue we're like past mid-season three now i guess all the times we've had humans involved in these situations never really made me miss witches but now that we have them it's like how has it been this long you're right you are bringing up a really interesting point with regards to are witches supernatural creatures or are they human would you like to move into the long game with me let's go it's not quite clear to me if this episode claims that all witches get their powers from demons or if this specific coven does and if in order to get witch powers you have to sell your soul to a demon The metaphysics of where witchcraft powers come from on this show are very unclear. And this is something going forward that I think we should keep track of. And here's why. Because we've seen Sam perform witchcraft before. And like you said, we've seen spell casting. And those spells have worked without him needing to call on the powers of other beings or to sell his soul. I wonder about why these specific witches had to sell their souls to a demon. I won't spoil it, but when we get to the lore segment, we do cover this a little bit. 
I also kind of wonder because on one side, you can kind of argue that Sam is an exception to the rule given his demony ties. You know, the, the dude has demon blood in him. I'm assuming that comes with some benefits when it comes to casting spells. We've also met characters who have dabbled in hoodoo and voodoo who don't necessarily seem to follow those same rules. So it's like kind of like do different cultures and different ways of casting magic, different rules. So could it be that there are some types of witches who do use, you know, demon uh, packs and others who don't? This is getting very D&D with the whole sorcerer versus wizard versus mage. They all draw their power from different sources and cast spells differently. So though they are all magic wielders, the rules apply differently. So it could be in this case that a certain sect of witches does use ties to demons. I can totally see that. And even a lot of the spells that Sam has cast, John has cast spells too. John doesn't have demon blood as far as we know. The ingredients for that spell were procured by Bobby. I think we've also seen Bobby spell cast before when it came to exercising the demon. He's clearly using some kind of of witchcraft, and if we haven't seen it yet, we will see it too. So that's why I'm kind. I was kind of asking about the metaphysics of that, but I'm I'm satisfied with what you've you've brought here. I, I think this is totally following Dungeons and Dragons rules. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm convinced now. We'll be tracking this with other future magic use. The scene where Dean is dying is foreshadowing two separate episodes in this season. No, please don't tell me these things. Oh, sorry. We will actually see Dean die a lot this season. This season? Yes. There's like six episodes left this season. Seven. Sorry, we're on episode, this is episode nine and this is a 16 episode season. How many times can he die in the next seven episodes? Don't answer that. A few hundred. You'll see. We also find out that demons were once humans who went to hell and forgot who they were. But Ruby says that she remembers what it's like to be human. I'm like already convinced this is not going to be explained to us, but I would love to see that level of like, how does that work? Like, I'd love to see the mechanical version of how does that work? Kind of like the whole magic thing. Like, what are the metaphysics of like, how far gone do you have to be to become a demon? What it like, what in your humanity does stay, if any, that might dictate what kind of demon you become? Like, I'm so intrigued by that kind of weird, like rules of the world. This will actually be discussed in some of the seasons. Some of it will be discussed almost uh, a lot in season four, and then others will be discussed, I think it's in season eight, but I'm not sure. But there's a whole arc about that, about when do you become a demon. So very interesting. Have we ever had this before, but can demons perform exorcisms? Why not? I don't know. There was always sort of a level of like the way it was perceived at least the way the show perceived exorcisms, it was some kind of like holy ritual or holy rite. If humans can call on the power of the devil, why can't, you know, or, or demons, why can't demons call on the power of the Catholic Church? You know? <laughs> I'm not going to go into this, but that, that raises so many moral questions. And An exorcism is basically witchcraft that is condoned by the church. It still raises so many questions for this demon. Anyways, I'm content with my answer. I just needed it to be said that I was shocked by that. And I thought it was an interesting development of the world. I love it. Let's move on to story time. Let's go. I don't know if you noticed, but I thought that the first half of the episode was very plot driven. And you kind of hinted at that in when we were discussing the episode in general. 
And we don't get all that much information about the brothers in that first half. But the second that they meet Ruby on that road, bam. So Ruby is desperately trying to get Sam out of town because the coven of witches is getting their power from a demon. And that demon is apparently bad news. Dean is just having none of it. He's pointing the cold at Ruby. Ruby is not impressed with the Dean. And the situation is escalating pretty quickly. To a point where Ruby tells Dean that it's lucky that she'll be there to help Sam when Dean is gone, and that Dean must not care about Sam because he's, quote-unquote, leaving him in a few months. It started off, I don't want to say playful, but it had that energy of the, like, my two friends that I both love who just really can't stand each other, or even to go further, the trope of the, like, the guy with a girlfriend and the best friend who's also a girl. They don't get along because she thinks he's bad for him and she thinks he's trying to steal her. Like, it just had that really, like, terrible, like, friendship triangle. Like, there was nothing romantic. It's purely a friendship triangle. But, like, when it gets to the point that she starts calling out Dean for, like, leaving Sam and having to, like, protect Sam once he's gone, it was just like, oh, the knife is in way too deep now. Yeah, and it went very quickly. Dean discharges the colt, and Sam manages to move his arm away from Ruby so she's not hit. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, how did you read everyone's motives here? So, like, you talked about how it felt at the beginning, but, like, seeing how it ends, seeing Sam save Ruby, seeing Ruby attacking Dean for leaving Sam, seeing Dean, like, being really angry at Ruby for defending... Like, how did you read everybody's motives here? First, the worst version of Rock, Paper, Scissors I've ever seen, uh, Dean, Sam, Ruby... We'll have to write the rules for it later. So Sam was very Sam is very much the intelligent one here. Not to discount everyone else's thought process, but Sam is very this is core Sam. This is Sam playing the long game. This is very much she hasn't screwed us over yet. She's been nothing but helpful. Sure. And this is both me speaking as Drew, the viewer of this and Sam in this moment. I don't fully trust her, but there's nothing saying I need to end her now. Very smart move. Dean is going off a little bit of emotion, which Ruby then riles him up further and literally triggers him, if I could use a very bad pun. But he's going off pure raw emotion and just really at the core wants to protect Sam. And Ruby, we still don't know, but I am, for how much the show is making me empathize with her, I'm sure it's going to go wrong soon. Like either we will realize she was genuinely a good person and they will kill her, or she will backstab them. One of the two. It's going to happen. And there's no there's no halfway. I like that. It's like either she's a good person and she's going to get murdered. <laughs> either she will be brutally killed or she will brutally kill someone that's, that we like. There is no middle ground. There is either you die or you get or you become the killer. I need to take a tiny aside here, though. I put this note in. But the way that Ruby describes the devil literally had me pause the episode to laugh. It is literally the way Jew, the Jewish people describe Jesus. We believe he exists and did a wonderful things, but he's not my leader or savior. <laughs> so Ruby literally I says, I believe in the devil. Like he probably exists or existed, but he's not my Messiah. Do you see Ruby as Jewish coded? I mean, this is the only moment I've really had. And I feel like most of our Ruby before this we haven't really gotten much character development in her other than like she clearly has like this tendency to help i'll have to keep an eye out for it i guess and see what that really means for the character but i'll keep a note i'll keep a tab 
in the next scene, we get sort of a, a, a furthering of these motivations, right? Where, you know, kind of like what you said, Sam thinks that Ruby can be useful and Dean really thinks that she's just stringing Sam along. For me, the most chilling part of that conversation is when Sam tells Dean that if he wants to survive this war, he's going to have to become more like Dean. I just find that this continues to kind of validate our reading of trauma being passed down from John to Dean to Sam. It's almost like Sam sees the trauma as a positive thing, as something to earn. Dean earned it from John, now he has to earn it from Dean. The right to be this way, not seeing what it really is as literal trauma being handed down from Normally, you would say from parent to child, but in this case, I think it kind of applies with Dean and Sam, given their relationship. I mean, you say that like it's unusual, but a lot of people see trauma as a positive thing. And and let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of people will be like, oh, well, everything that you've lived lived through has made you more strong, has made you more resilient. Look at how strong you are today because of everything you've gone through. So it's not unusual for people to say that. People need therapy. A lot of people need a lot of therapy. Yeah, I agree. And you know, you really see it because John ended his life in order to save Dean. Dean is ending his life in order to save Sam. And literally, you know, and he knows how painful it was for him. And yet he's doing that exact same thing to his little brother. So anyway... And then Sam, you know, is picking that up. Like if I, if I'm going to survive, I'm going to need to be tough. I'm going to need to be strong. Like I'm going to need to be this toxic masculine man that my dad was and that my brother is in order to survive. I don't want to imagine the world where this does come to fruition and Sam then becomes the asshole and like takes some new punk kid under his wing and then turns him into the same thing. A never ending chain of trauma. I mean, the reality is that like, until someone goes to therapy, <laughs> until someone starts to heal, you know, that unhealed trauma. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. You're going to keep passing your trauma until you learn to live with it and to be healthy. So this is also where Dean is almost killed by the hex bag and Sam goes after the coven. What did you think of the reveal that Tammy was the demon? Okay, I love it, but I'm also a little annoyed. I thought it was a fun reveal. I wish there could have been a little more hint laying to let the viewers kind of put it together as well. But then I think back to the scene where they're in the car and they're listing off everyone's accomplishments. They really clearly don't mention Tammy. I feel like a, a cheaper writing team would have been like, oh, and then there's Tammy and like nothing in the papers about her and like played it off like nothing. Just so the audience goes, oh, but by just not mentioning her, it makes you realize that it's been planted the whole time and we just didn't catch it, which I'm really impressed by. It's going to sound like super obnoxious of myself, but like I am rarely caught off guard by TV and movies. When a show or a movie can pull one over on me like this, I am very impressed and very happy. Like it gives me joy to be wrong in those things. Wish we would have learned the demon's name or more about the demon. Because I'm guessing we're not seeing them again, given the stabby stabbies. No, the stabby stabbies pretty much ended that demon. I think that the whole point of doing it this way was to show how cool and collected Sam can now stay in a very emotional and tense situation. Because in the past, we've seen him, I, I'm thinking particularly about, I think it's, it was Shadow, 
when he saw John again, like he just couldn't think anymore. And it was Dean who was able to say like, you need to do this. You need to like, you need to go. We need to go this way. And here I think it's to show again the evolution of Sam and how now he's much more able to make those calls by himself. It's well done in the world that we literally have a conversation where Dean confronts Sam about the whole being more like Dean. And Sam's explanation is like, they're witches, they're killing people. I I have to be tougher. I have to confront them. So when he shows up with a gun, albeit the cult, it really feels like, oh, you're just going to come murder three women who were casting spells, albeit murdered someone, at least we are led to believe. But then the reveal, not just of the demon, but that he knew one of them was a demon and his intention was never to kill these two women. It gives me faith in Sam again for the first time in a long time. Oh, Sam, I'm so happy about that. Okay, let's switch gears very briefly. When Ruby tells Tammy, I've wanted you for so long, I immediately thought on this rewatch, well, that's pretty sapphic. And like clockwork, we get a shot of Dean, not Sam, not anyone else, Dean, lifting his eyebrows and thinking the exact same thing. Like he and I were just like connected by the brain. Yeah, that was not a, I used to be your servant and I want to come back. That is, we used to be more than just master and slave. And now that I'm saying that part out loud, maybe they were. Yeah, no, there was definitely mega queer energy in that moment. Mega queer energy. And honestly, like, this is when I'm going to say that it takes one to know one, Dean. (laughs) And in the end, Elizabeth distracts Tammy long enough for Dean to brutally shank her and Sam and Dean get out of the house, leaving Ruby alive. Yeah, that shanking, like, again, understandable that you wouldn't just stab once and call it enough. You would go a little further. I legitimately checked my watch at some point. I was like, this is going on for a while. Yeah, it was a little over the top. And again, narratively, they had seen the the knife work before. Ruby didn't need to like double, triple, quadruple stab the other demons. She stabbed them once. And then after they get back to the motel and Ruby finds Dean to tell him a couple of things. First, that he's going to become a demon when he goes to hell. And second, that she can't actually save him from his deal. And that she only told Sam that so that he would talk to her so that she could get him ready for the fight, for the war, without Dean. And that's just a lot of information all at once. It occurs to me, and I'm really doubling down now and trying to pinpoint it, I don't think Dean ever argues it in front of Sam that he doesn't think she can save him. He implies it in the fact that he's like, I don't trust her. She's lying to you. But he never explicitly says she can't save me. And I think because he knows that already. Like, I don't think he's surprised by that. He's just getting confirmation. No, I agree with you. I don't think he's surprised by that. But I, I think that they've had conversations where he clearly says, like, she's lying to you. You know, she's she knows what your weakness is and it's me. And I think that he's also said something like, And anyway, like if we try to get out of the deal, you die. So like it's it's there's a clear understanding that he. That's my my issue, though, is I feel like the times that Dean specifies getting out of the deal would kill you. It's never in relation to Ruby saving him. Like there was just a sort of weird moment with them. And I don't know if I'm reading something or I'm misremembering, but it really felt like Dean needed the confirmation from her. 
Because he already knew deep down that she wasn't saving him. Dean does tell Sam that she's lying to him. So like, that's for sure. He says it with those words. But then I think that a part of him still had like that little tiny flicker of hope, you know, like you always hope for the impossible, even when it's impossible. And I think that this revelation, quote unquote, was the extinguishing of that little spark, that little possibility, that little hope, basically. The hope is gone. Like there was a knowingness to Dean of like, he was asking, but he knew the answer already. And it just, it kind of broke my heart. I know, because he probably thinks that good things can't happen to him, right? So I'll be very curious to see how Dean reacts when Ruby shows up next. Well, see, I think that that conversation was only allowed to happen or Dean only allowed that conversation to happen because I don't think that Ruby was not allowing that conversation to happen. Dean was not allowing it to happen because he now sees humanity in her. Like a lot of this has to do with his view of her changing in that moment of literally like risking her life to save them. Oh, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it's because he now knows that she used to be human. Really? That's what I think. Interesting. Part of me reads it as Dean. Yes, he, he understands that now that all demons were once human, as Ruby puts it. And I think that just kind of is like, a, it's, just, it's just it's knowledge. I don't think it affects his view. I think it was seeing her be emotional and show feelings and then risk to save them almost more. But now I'm actually really intrigued if that isn't the tipping point, though, the humanity side of it. But I mean, she showed emotion, but like it was a trick. It's admitting there was emotion. Even if this time was a lie, there was a relationship before. Her humanity. Oh, true. Because the relationship they had was back when she was a witch. Oh, my God. Yes. So do we think Dean is now seeing a glimmer of hope that maybe he could be a ruby and they'll become a demon, retain his human side? I think that that's probably his worst nightmare to know what he is, to know that he's a demon and to not be able to stop it. I don't know. I can kind of see him going the whole Ghost Rider side of this thing where you get to retain the humanity like Ruby has, but get all the cool demon powers and become the world's greatest demon hunter. Yeah, but I think that that's the thing. Like, he doesn't know what's going to happen. But you don't think there's a part of him that sees that glimmer of hope that maybe he could turn out like she did? No, because I don't think he trusts her. You know what I mean? Like, to him, she's still a demon, and she has she's, she's, she's a part of both worlds. A part of both worlds, much like a bisexual man who doesn't quite fit in anywhere. And that's literally Dean in so many ways. Oh, there's so much in this scene. There's, oh my God, this is the revelations. This one chat out of Motel's cause is amazing. Shall we move on to critical time? Let's go. So I know I already said at the beginning, I'm aware of the answer to this, but I would love for you to announce it for our listeners so we can discuss it in more detail. But who wrote and who directed this lovely episode? It gives me great pleasure to inform you again that the writer of this episode is Ben Edlund, who in season two wrote Simon Said, Night Shifter, and Hollywood Babylon, and so far in season three has written Bad Day at Black Rock. As for the director, it's Robert Singer, who directed Phantom Traveler and Salvation in season one, Bloodlust, Croatoan, All Hell Breaks Loose part two in season two, and Bad Day at Black Rock in season three. I enjoy both of these creators' works on the show. They tend to always be episodes I enjoy. Looking at the list you've given us here, the, definitely it is episodes I recall very clearly enjoying. I forgot they did Bad Day at Black Rock together. That was a good one. 
That was a classic. <laughs> I agree. I like Bad Dad Black Rock. It makes me happy. I lost my shoe. The shoe line. It's just so, Sam. Oh. And again, we have another very fun uh, reference to a band in their uh, fake names. While they are posing as government agents, they use the names Bachman and Turner, referencing the classic rock band Bachman Turner Overdrive, who I'm a big fan of. So that was very nice. What do you have for us in terms of lore this episode? Even before having watched the episode, you would message me saying, I think this would be our lore segment for this episode. Then I saw the title and went, ah, yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I figured we would dive into what exactly is the Malleus Maleficarum. Well, first of all, I'll translate the title for those of you who do not speak Latin like myself. I, I literally just had to Google this. I couldn't find it. Uh, interestingly, it has two common translations. Hammer of the Witches or Hammer of the Wicked. Most people believe the Hammer of the Witches is kind of not a translation, but just sort of like a renaming of it to better fit the narrative around this book. Officially, like the most accurate is Hammer of the Wicked. I don't know if it'll surprise anyone to know, but this is actually a real book that exists and was written by a Catholic clergyman. Uh, he received the assistance of many other theologians and other respected thinkers. And uh, essentially, it's a plea to the church to just recognize witchcraft. It is literally a very long essay where he says witchcraft is real. This is what it is. And we need to stop it. Officially, besides the like ridiculous amount of preamble where he just gets a bunch of other like well-respected people to sign off on his work saying like, yeah, I believe him too, I guess. Just as a little aside, that is a totally normal thing within the writing of that time because there weren't such things as like citing scientific articles or citing sources. And so in the beginning, what you would do is either like praise the person who paid you to write this work or to have other people praise you to show that you are an expert in this field. But I'm still very cynical about this person, so. You can be as cynical as you'd like. This man claimed to be an expert on witchcraft. Oh yeah, and I think our listeners will too when they hear the three major segments the book contained. So the first is an examination of whether witchcraft is real or fantasy. I like this. He's at least posing the question, is this just fantastical hearsay or is witchcraft real? The conclusion is... Witchcraft is real because it gets its power from the devil, and the devil is real. So second, we get examples of cases of witchcraft. This is where he is citing examples of different spells that have taken place, or curses, or instances, but very heavily also focuses on the process of witches to recruit new witches. The two major methods being using magic to disturb one's life, thus forcing women to come to them for guidance and eventually be in inducted into their own uh, coven, or the demons and devils themselves wooing young maidens and luring them into a life of debauchery and darkness. Lastly is the bit you, as a listener, will probably be the most familiar with, unfortunately, and that is an entire section of the book dedicated on how to deal with witches, more literally a step-by-step -step guide to performing witch trials, and by witch trials I mean torture and deception, and then the execution of those allegedly guilty parties. Fun fact while reading this and looking into this, if you were put on trial for being a witch, and did not cry, you were automatically declared a witch. All of this to say, it's really weird to imagine a cult of witches using this book, literally a book describing what witches are, how bad they are, and how to kill them, as a way to commune with a demon of some sort. And I, I mean, it's a very cursory search. There aren't a huge list of covens just giving out their what they do's and their guidelines, but I can't really find any examples of practices using this book as any kind of 
token in their traditions. But were the were the witches using the Malleus Maleficarum? It appeared to be the book they were praying to when they were... Because uh, usually a book of shadows is something completely different. Like it's a book of spells, right? Because you're right. They do refer to the book as the book of shadows when they're uh, having their first ritual. And they never actually refer to the book in any other way. Interesting. I think personally that perhaps the episode was just named that way because they end up killing a bunch of witches. And basically, like, it showed those three things. How do you know who is a witch, how witches are recruited, and how then to get, you know, to get rid, quote unquote, of witches. Kind of assumed it was it was their book they were using, their book of shadows. But you're right, it would make no sense. It really is a reference to dealing with the witches less than the witches themselves. Right, because a book of shadows would be like a book of spells. Something that's interesting, I think, historically about you know, the era in which the Malleus Maleficarum was written is that there was no such thing as feminism. Like feminist thought was not a thing. It's only a little bit later in the 17th century that we're going to start seeing people, mostly women, start talking about what we call today pro-woman discourse, which is like basically pre-feminism. No, it's interesting to hear. And thank you for sharing that as well. And I know you have some critiques to share with us as well this week, don't you? Well, I touched upon this a little bit in the long game, but I'm still kind of confused and annoyed at the metaphysics of witch powers, because I know that you provided a really good narrative explanation, but critically, I have issues with it. We've talked about this before, but when Sam, a man, spell cast in previous episodes, there was nothing nefarious about it. The spells were self-contained in the sense that, like, you bring specific things to sacrifice at an altar, you do the ritual, and you get results. Simple, right? In this episode, when women are depicted as using witchcraft, they're selling their souls to a demon in addition to having to do the rituals. And that just doesn't sit really well with me, because this inconsistency in world building happens to coincide with a gender difference. And it leads to seeing Sam doing witchcraft as morally neutral, but this coven of female witches we're seeing as evil. Would you have a personal reflection and call to action to share with us this week? I feel like this episode has continued a trend we have seen throughout the series up to this point pretty regularly, and that is revenge. And as we've discussed, and this episode does also kind of show a very immediate version of, revenge is messy. And I feel like revenge really just comes down to being preoccupied with the people around you and the world outside of you, especially when it comes to validation and response. And I think my and this is where my reflection comes in, my my personal reflection and call to action is to look inward. I feel like we spend so much time. And I mean, there's so many reasons why this is the case, and it's not just a case of revenge, but we spend so much time looking for validation outside of ourselves from other people around us. And I think it's important to just look inward sometimes for validation and see that you're doing what you like to be doing. I'll be very honest. I, I am so proud of where we've come with this podcast and the connection we've had with people externally is amazing. I also love doing it for myself. I love what I get out of it. I love the work I get to create. I love being able to be involved in such a beautiful project. I love what I'm doing. And it's not to say that the other parts aren't valuable. I don't, you know, look at our our listener base and our friends and our our connections with people and like, you know, they're not worth as much. But it's important that 
as much as I can recognize those, I recognize that I'm enjoying what I'm doing myself for me. So just a reminder to look inward and make sure you're happy. Aw, thank you, True. Thanks for the reminder. And yourself, what would you got for this week? Well, this episode got me thinking about everyone's motives for doing things that they did in this episode. So some were selfish, like Renee using witchcraft to get a better mortgage rate, right? Selfish, not terrible, but pretty selfish. But others were selfless, like, for example, Elizabeth slowing down Tammy, even though it was unlikely that she would survive. Some motives came to light and others stayed hidden for now. And so my call to action this week is to pay attention to people's motivations for doing things, but particularly to be honest with myself about my own motivations. So look inward, basically. Yeah, look at us. We kind of came to similar conclusions of the different routes. I like that. Who'd have thunk? Shall we see what our community has to share with us this week? Certainly. This week, we have a voicemail from Kara. Hey, Karen Boyward. My name is Tamar, and I wanted to talk again about the way Dean is always so self-sacrificent and why. Now, Dean was always put in a second place because there was always someone, Sam, who needed more help and protection because he was younger. And while I'm not saying that Sam didn't deserve the help and protection, Dean obviously internalized the fact that Sam always comes uh, first. But he also did that with the fact that his his life are in a second place. And uh, that's not good. Now, in my country, uh, sometimes people shoot at us missiles. Um, And while it doesn't happen a lot in my uh, environment, it happens a lot in my friends. And when you're in a car and there's an alarm that tells you that you should get out of the car, you have 10 seconds, and you need to get your children out of the car. And you have taken seconds, so you can't get both of them. So you always help the younger. And my friends who live in those places where it happens a lot, and our older siblings uh, ended up internalizing the fact that their life are in a second place and that they don't deserve the help their younger siblings does. And obviously that's not true. But it's something that happens when your parent just goes and helps your younger sibling and you need to take care of yourself you start internalizing well maybe i don't matter so much so dean obviously thinks about himself as less and views his life as less valuable than other people's lives and although we know that's wrong we can't blame him because he was always put second and that gives you a lot of emotional damage But I do want to go back to Dean's cruelness because it does play a role in that I deserve less than other people. Because even when you grow up in an accepting environment, which I believe Dean hasn't, there's still this, at least for me and for other queer people I know, sense of I am not just like other people and therefore I deserve less and obviously it's not a universal thing but I know a lot of people that experienced that and that obviously plays a role in well I deserve less because I am less and I'll come in second place because I deserve to be in second place I don't deserve good things 
And that, in combination with the way Dean grew up, is extremely damaging. And obviously, it makes sense that he doesn't believe he deserves good things. He doesn't believe he deserves happy ending. We see that. We see that all the time. Dean doesn't believe he deserves a happy ending. He doesn't believe he deserves to be happy. And I don't think he'll ever believe that his life is as valuable as other people's lives. He will believe that, like, Sam's life is the most valuable things thing in the world. He will believe that. But his? No. And the way Dean will put his life in harm's way or even sacrifice them for people he barely knows or doesn't know at all is deeply connected to that. Now, on another personal note, I have been responsible for a lot of uh, LGBTQ plus youth um, since I was 13. I am 14 years old now. And a lot of people in groups of queer youth that I am in have no one that will accept them no parental figure, big sibling, nothing. So I I am their big sibling. I will hear about their dates, I will tell them to go to sleep, I will do all of that. And they are in extreme situations. There are people who experience violence, there are people who are in danger of being kicked out of their homes. There's a lot of things and I am the one responsible for you know, keeping them safe and being there for them through everything. And that also played a role in me feeling like I deserve less. And because they are in more danger than I am, I, my problems doesn't matter, don't matter. And I think this happens to Dean too. Because Dean th- sees a lot of people in a lot of danger. And when you see that on a regular basis, you start thinking, okay, but my problems, they don't matter because uh, my problems aren't as big as theirs. And to all the people listening, that's wrong. That's so wrong. Your problems matter even if they are small as you think they are or big as they probably are. That doesn't matter. You deserve help. And I think that's something Dean doesn't get. And I don't get either. So yeah, given the fact that Dean was always second his entire life and had to take care of other people, mainly Sam, and the fact that he grew up in an unaccepting environment and probably believed that he deserves less than other people because he's quote-unquote not normal and also saw a lot of danger and wrong things happening to a lot of people around him, which probably led him to believe that his problems matter less, Yeah, I am so not surprised that he doesn't believe that his life is as valuable as others and is so quick to throw them away to save other people. Thank you very much for listening. Have a nice day. Kara, it's so nice to hear from you again. And I have to say that, like, what you mentioned in the beginning of your your message about parents being faced with the choice of helping only one of their children in absolutely extreme circumstances makes complete sense with what we're seeing in Supernatural, particularly. If we assume positive intent for John for a second, Dean is older, Dean is bigger, Dean can run, whereas Sam may not have been able to, and so he would have 
prioritized helping Sam over Dean. You know, maybe that wasn't quite your goal, but I think that you've made me empathize with John a little bit in this moment. Drew is making a face because he's probably like, what is happening? Thank you for providing this piece of information, even though I'm like, (laughs) maybe that's not exactly what you wanted me to do with it. Um, But I think it's important. I think it's important to recognize. And while I disagree with most of the choices that John ever made, there are some that I understand. And I think that, you know, I disagree with him putting his children in dangerous situations. But now that they are, you know, the choices that he made in order to quote unquote, save them from the dangerous situations that he put them in, I understand. Not condoning anything that he's ever done, though. Just putting that out there. I don't think there's any part of us that's going to sit here and say this is the one we turn a new leaf on believing in John in a different way. There was a scenario where they had to run. Dean, being the older one, is more likely to be able to run and make it, whereas Sam is less likely. So if you're going to help one, it's the one who's less likely to make it because the other one's probably going to make it. Does it excuse John for anything he's ever done? No. But would that leave a lasting impression on Dean? Because as the person affected by it, I don't think that is something you can logic away. And even if and I think we've all been there where someone tries to explain something to you and you go, yeah, I get like mechanically why that works. But like when your parent, the person you see as your protector basically says, I'm gonna protect him more than you. It's going to affect you, especially as a child. And then you add the fact that he, there's clearly parts of Dean that John doesn't approve of in his sexuality, that he now feels like Sam has to be protected more and that he is less of a person already on top of the fact that he is doing something that John doesn't agree with. It just compounds an already existing problem. It is very understandable where Dean is coming from in these scenarios, why he has been shaped to believe the way he does to protect Sam over himself and why he even outside of the world of being on a ticking time clock before his death has always been a little more of the reckless, you know, type overall. I mean, thank you for bringing the point you did. This was a beautiful voicemail again. Like it warms my heart to hear so much from you as much as some of the things you said definitely left me in a state of like white knuckle terror for a split second. Thank you for reaching out and sharing with us and to anyone who needs to hear it. You're not worth, less than anyone else you are worth so much to so many people and to yourself do we have any crossroads deal this week oh we have a crossroads deal this week let's go would you like to get started i feel like there's uh, a lot of uh, passion behind this i'm gonna say i think you awoke something in me last week on a recording (laughs) i've never awoken anything in anybody drew (laughs) i just feel like you pointed out the thing with the smashing the cell phones to not be tracked. I had another one of those moments in this episode when I believe it is the unnamed demon possessing Tammy throws Ruby into the TV and the TV like bursts into sparks and electrical fire. That doesn't happen. <laughs> TVs aren't just loaded with like raw sparks ready to burst out as soon as they are like pushed over slightly. For a show that is so good at being gritty and as much as I use the term realistic when talking about a show of such supernatural proportions, it does have a very strong tie to like a real balanced world. Like things have rules. There is a system of like logic to everything to then go like Power Rangers level of special effects on a TV being smashed. I was waiting for the cartoon explosion they walk away from at some point like. It actively took me out of the scene, 
what was otherwise a really good fight scene between two very strong independent women. You know what's really funny is that I didn't even notice that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you didn't. (laughs) Yes, there you go. I love how we each have our little specific things that are that feel ridiculous to us in this show. Did Dean really need to be showed shanking a woman like that? We didn't need to. Like we discussed in the episode, it was way too graphic. Every time that we've seen the knife working, people only had to be stabbed or demons only had to be stabbed once and it worked. So I'm really wondering why it had to be so brutal. And I really wish that it hadn't been. It didn't need to be as graphic as it was. Like, it was a tight shot on the stab wound with the knife going in and out repeatedly for way too long. We've discussed in the past seeing, like, when somebody shoots a character, they often take an extra shot just to make sure. Even in horror movies, I've, like, criticized characters for not having done that. You want to be 100% sure the thing you're killing is dead when it needs to be. I could see Dean in a fit of, like, frustration maybe stabbing two or three times. This was hateful, and uh, this, this, this was misogynistic, frankly. We've talked before about how blades are often phallic. Like, this is just not a good scene for me. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigourou, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Kara for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our next live event will be a live recording of our Season 3 recap. You can use the link at any of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. Stop listening. Stop listening. Stop listening. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And this is why I should be checking them before. Um, So we can't listen to this one yet. (laughs) Understood. (laughs) How much did you hear? (laughs) 